Good morning to you all. We are in Habakkuk chapter 3, and I'll read verses 13 through 16. Habakkuk is a minor prophet. If you're fumbling through your Bible trying to find it's between Nahum and Zephaniah, I'm sure that didn't help you as well. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, and then you're, you're on your way. You're going to find it eventually. Thirteen through, I should say 16 through 19, this is the word of the living God. When I heard, my body trembled, my lips quivered at the voice, rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on my high hills to the chief musician with my string instruments. I realize that I've just read the last four verses of a book that some of you may not know much about, so what I want to do is briefly explain to get to this particular uh, portion of God's word, so it might make sense. It might make some reasonable uh, connection to these particular verses. Habakkuk is, here's the explanation of the book. Habakkuk is very bothered by the violence that's going on within Judah. Brethren against brethren, uh, there was violence. There was plundering of, of the neighbor's goods by brethren as well as contentions and fightings among one another, and Habakkuk was greatly troubled at that and brings his complaint to God. Well, God says, okay, I see what they are doing. Please excuse my 21st century explanation of this, but what God is basically saying is, I see what's going on. I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans, which is the Babylonians, which is a wicked nation to correct your people, to correct God's people. Habakkuk is astounded by this. He reasons with God. He says, wait a minute, you've ordained the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, for judgment, not us. Are you going to take a pagan nation and correct a righteous nation? So he makes his argument with God. He's going to wait to see what God says. And God comes to him in chapter 2, verses 2 through 20. And God says, write the vision down. It's going to be plain. I'm not going to change my mind. But the just shall live by his faith, and he brings out the terror of the Chaldeans. In fact, the Lord has four woes with regards to the Chaldeans, bringing out their sin. This is amazing. The thing about it is, is when you look at those woes, can it be that some of those woes might have been against the people of God? They may have been doing the same thing that the Chaldeans were doing. And so as a result, Habakkuk has been corrected. And we get to chapter 3, and chapter 3 is a prayer. And the prophet here is humbled to pray, which is a proof that he shall walk by his faith. In fact, before the invasion of the Chaldeans, 
the prophet here, Habakkuk, is an example of prayer. He's an example to the people of faith because prayer is faith exercised. His prayer as well shows deep reverence and awe of God's power, God's judgment, as well as God's correction, as well as God's victories. As you read through chapter 3, you can do that on your own, you will see certain areas where God had victory for his people, the parting of the Red Sea, as well as Gideon and his small band of, of troopers winning against a very, very large army. Reason being is that this is going to be read by the people, and this is supposed to encourage the people, for when they go into captivity, they will walk by their faith. Which brings us now to verse 16. There, in about five minutes, I explain two and a half chapters. Hopefully that makes sense when I read chapter 3 and verse 16, because here he trembles, his body trembles, his lips quiver. There's a report that is so terrifying that the prophet is given over to fear. When you look at verse 16, you're looking at the prophet's fear. The mere report of the Chaldeans is horrible. Now, just remember, a report is not as bad as the experience. I can talk to you about a broken arm, but until you have the broken arm, it doesn't hurt. You might be a little fearful of it, but when it does happen, now the experience is far worse than the report. And this news of the Chaldeans, though the prophet is walking by faith, still makes him tremble, still makes him quiver. Rottenness enters his bones. Within himself, it doesn't look very good for him. However, you would think that his next words would be filled with sorrow and fear. Not so. It's halfway in the verse. He says, rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself. Why? That I may rest in the day of trouble. He's going to rest in that day of trouble. Even though the Chaldeans will come and invade them. And remember, the Chaldeans were a ruthless, terrible people. They just took one nation after another, other and they, the way that they killed their enemies was fearful. This was going to happen to the people of God. This was going to happen to Habakkuk. He and his countrymen were going to be taken by the Chaldeans. And yet, he rests in the day of trouble. Rest in hope during difficult days, even when he views the violent countrymen, his Jew, his Jewish brethren, how violent they were towards one another. He sees that. He hears the prospect of the Chaldeans. They're going to be coming. The future doesn't look very good. It's a bleak future, which gets us to verse 17. They just went from bad to worse. Though the fig tree may not blossom, no fruit on the vine, no labor, no olive, no fields, no flock, it's a progression here. This is an agricultural society that the Jews lived in. And look at the progression. If there's no blossoms, there's not going to be any fruit. If there's not going to be any fruit, there's not going to be any fields. If there's not going to be any fields, there's not going to be any labor. Everyone's going to be unemployed, so to speak. The fields are vacant. And then if there's no fields, the animals will not have anything to feed on. They will starve to death. And what happens when the animals starve to death and there's no fields? The people starve to death. It's a progression. 
appears to be sorrow on every side. Poverty, famine, destruction was next by the Chaldeans and God withholding rain. Greatest physical affliction. Again, you would consider that maybe the prophet is going to continue on in this downward spiral, but he doesn't in verse 18 because he says, yet. In spite of all this, and it doesn't look good at all, his response, though sorrow is on every side, he rejoices. There is joy. He is resolved to rejoice in the Lord. It is indeed a rare virtue in the face of starvation and poverty to have joy. Notice here the prophet shows no bitterness, no discouragement, no looking for a possibility that things will get better or there's going to be a restoration of the land or a restoration of riches. The prophet, in order to rejoice in those bad times, begins rejoicing now, at his time. But notice it's in the future. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. He's aware of the difficulties. He brought that out in verse 17. But it's important to purpose when times are good to be praising the Lord. So when the difficult times come, it's your common practice that you have been praising the Lord so you can get through those difficult times. Why does Habakkuk rejoice when the essentials of life are gone? Well, you see in verse 18 that he rejoices in the Lord, the God of his salvation. He joys in his God. He knows who God is. He joys, rejoices, happy, praising the Lord his God. God and salvation is of much more value than prosperity as well as poverty. God is much more important than that. And his salvation, God does not change. He's infinite in power and kindness and love and mercy. He's compassionate towards his people. Notice he is the God of my salvation. The prophet here in the Old Testament was saved. He enjoyed the salvation of the Lord. This is what was going to sustain him and strengthen him. Look at man's greatest need. Man's greatest need is not food, shelter, and clothing. Man's greatest need, because of his sin, because of his rebellion against God, is his sins need to be forgiven. If you've been at this church any amount of time, we say this all the time from the pulpit, our greatest need Man's greatest need is that his sins would be forgiven. And that's what the prophet here is enjoying. He's enjoying that. To have sins forgiven, to have peace with God, to have the knowledge of God. And with New Testament approach, it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, his perfect life. He fulfilled the law, his death, his resurrection from the dead. You know, food and money and even good health eventually go away. They are temporary. You put one on their deathbed and these things fade away. 
as it cannot keep us from the hour of death as well as the judgment to come. The prophet here rejoiced in God his Savior, and he will continue to rejoice in God his Savior. I will rejoice. It's in the future tense, as I mentioned earlier. He rejoices in God since God is the author and perfecter of his rescue, of his faith, of his salvation. It's God and God alone that has done this wonderful work of grace within the prophet's heart, as well as God's people there in Judah. And though God may afflict the prophet and the inhabitants of Judah to an extreme degree, the just shall live by his faith. As God's people find their comfort in the Lord, the prophet is persuaded that his salvation, that his rescue is in God's hands because God is faithful to fulfill his promises. And even though he slay me, as Job said, yet will I trust in him. The prophet and the just man may have outward afflictions, and it's going to happen. It's in the future. God has not changed his mind about the fact he's going to raise up the Chaldeans. But he has inward peace, and he has inward joy. Though life has much confusion, sorrow, and pain, the prophet's world being destroyed by the Chaldeans, in spite of all of this, inward joy because of God, because of his word, because of his promises, because of his fatherly care, and the knowledge that God works all things together for good. Not all things are good, but he works them together for good, for the help and benefit of the prophet and for God's people. Now, we notice here in verse 18, there's a lot of will. I will. I will. But he doesn't do it like, by everything within me, I will do this. Or he begins to boast. You watch these TV shows and their competition shows. It's amazing how these people talk about how they're going to win. I will win. I will win. And you know what? All of them lose except for one. So it's not that kind of I will that the prophet is talking about here. I'm, I will. I will do it. I will use my free will. I'll use every energy within me. I'm self-sufficient. I will, I will, I will. That's not the I will he's talking about because when you look at verse 19, who's his strength? The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. He will make me walk on my high hills. The prophet now confirms the same truth. No strength, but in God alone. Many are strong when providence deals a good hand. No courage is needed then, right? When everything's going fine, no courage is needed. But what happens when the test comes? What happens when the trial comes? What happens when the difficulties come? And those who have the fear of man do not travel, but they hibernate. But the righteous will be bold with their minds as they're set on the Lord of heaven, having confidence in God, and they will ascend. That's what he shows here. I will make my feet, he will make my feet like deer's feet. He will make me walk on my high hills. 
The other way some may see this as is what we said earlier in verse 18, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will join the God of salvation. The Lord is my strength. Okay. He will make my feet. Some have said, oh, I will make my feet. It's God who does it. God who makes his feet like deer's feet, swift. He's going to live, it's a, it's a metaphor, obviously, and that is the prophet is going to live in a lively, um, cheerful manner. He's not going to allow these difficulties to hold him back from rejoicing in God, his Savior. Habakkuk will not limp along. He will not limp along. He will indeed endure unto the end. The righteous will be bold with their minds, and they'll set their heart upon the Lord. Now, it would appear at the end of verse 19 that Habakkuk's prayer was to be sung. It, it appears to be, because it says right there, to the chief musician with my stringed instruments. Now, singing usually employ, implies joy. Some amount of joy, even though there's sorrow, and sometimes we may sing of difficult providences in our hymns, but there is to be singing. No vain repetition here, as you notice. I imagine Habakkuk handing chapter 3 to the chief musician, saying, by the way, I want you to sing this on Shigionoth. Did I say that right? Shigionoth, sorry. Shigionoth. Now, I'm not meaning to distract you. But I'm sure that you may have seen in verse 1 of chapter 3 the word Shigionoth. And you look in your Bibles and you will notice my Bible says the exact meaning is unknown. Okay? My teachers in my library uh, advised me of two possibilities. And the only reason I'm bringing this out is that will help us with the end of the verse. Okay? So just stay with me for a moment. We're taking a little trail. We're going to sit down here and we're just going to discuss... Shigionoth, just for a second here, a minute. It can mean ignorance, which means the prophet is going to confess his ignorance. That's what Mr. Calvin says. Or it could be, as Mr. Gill says, it's in the plural. It could be the title of the seventh psalm, and it could be a tune or a stringed instrument. Okay, So that's why I think maybe it could be a combination of both. But I think the point that I'm making here, that the prophet is making here, is that the difficulties that are coming, the people should still sing. They should sing this hymn right here. To the chief musician and my stringed instruments. Well, there's something else I think that we might be missing that's not here in, in the verse. God is going to take the people of God and put them into Babylon. And the reason he's doing that is because of their sin. They're rebelling against him. They were not faithful. They went against that covenant that God had made. And as a result of them breaking that covenant, God was going to put them into a foreign land. Could there have been maybe another reason why God put them into Babylon? God is great. Greatly to be feared. And God does things way beyond our capability to think on these things. I submit to you, and I'm being suggestive here, that one of the reasons why God put the people of God into Babylon was to save the king of Babylon. Again, I'm being suggestive here, but I want you to listen to the book of Daniel, chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar 
was prideful, lifted up in pride, and God humbled him greatly. Listen to the words of Nebuchadnezzar. Does this not sound like a man that knows the living God in a saving way? At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He, that's God, does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me, and I was restored to my kingdom. And excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. And in my book, it appears that this is a saved man. How else could he have come in contact with the truth of God unless God's people were there and Daniel was that example to him? Again, I'm being suggestive, using a little sanctified imagination. But can it be also that he was going to save Darius, who was the king of the Medes and the Persians? Still in the same book of Daniel, chapter 6. This is after Daniel is saved from the lion's den. We all know that story, right, kids? The lion's den. Listen to Darius. Then in in chapter 6 and verse 25, then King Darius wrote, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. Common greeting. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues, and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. And I would submit to you, that sounds like a man that knows the Lord. So can it be that one of the reasons why the people of God were put into captivity was to save Gentiles? Just being suggestive here. Well, now I've explained the verses. I'm going to try and apply them. I think I've already applied part of it, but I'm going to try to finish this up and apply what we've just looked at. My first point for us as as the people of God is for us to meditate and rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ, the God of our salvation. Our record in heaven, brethren, has the righteousness of Jesus Christ. God is for us. And he's not against us. He has loved us with an everlasting love. And it would be good for us as Christians, those that believe upon the Savior, to think much upon his goodness towards us. He rescued us from our sins. He brought us to a saving knowledge of himself. He worked repentance within us. We saw our lack of faithfulness, and yet we see God's faithfulness in the gospel of his dear son. Look at his promises. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. The Lord Jesus said that the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. He has his hands wrapped around us with a loving care. 
be good for us to meditate and rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ as God has done a wonderful work of regeneration within us. We have peace with sin. We have peace with God. And think on his history, how God has been very gracious to his people. That's why we give the exhortation. Even when you become a member, it's in our, um, I think it's in our constitution that we are to read the Bible daily. That's how we read about God's history, how faithful he has been to his people throughout all ages and how faithful he has been to you that profess his holy name. In Holy Scripture, we have God's account of his goodness towards us. And when we meditate and rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ, this will help us in our prosperity. Because in our prosperity, we might forget God. Proverbs 30 brings that out. He didn't want to be rich. He didn't want to be poor. Sounds like he just wanted middle class. But the thing is, is that we need to take heed because we do indeed live in prosperous times. My brethren, we live in the United States of America. We don't even think, probably, as we've gotten older about our finances. And we need to be careful not to forget God, but to be thankful to him. And you won't forget him as you pray to him daily and thank him for your daily bread. Also meditate and rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ when difficult times come. Could be a loss of a job. Could be financial difficulties, loss of your wealth, injury, sickness, cancer. Be rejoicing because your names are written in heaven. Now, this is not easy. This is very difficult. When you go through those trials, very difficult to rejoice in the Lord. It's not easy. But I would submit to you that prepare yourself for those days. And if you're in those days, remember the prophet to rejoice in the Lord his God, we rejoice in the Lord, our Savior. Rejoicing during difficult times doesn't mean you have a perpetual smile on your face as if you went to bed the night before the hanger in your mouth. It's not going to happen. You're not going to be able at times to have that smile when you're going through the very, very, very difficult times. The trial, though, has been ordered by God. And since it's been your pattern for praising the Lord, hopefully during those difficult times, you force yourself to do that. I'm going to praise the Lord. He has saved me from my sins in spite of the fact that I have all these physical difficulties lining up on me. I mean, we're an older congregation, right? We're getting older. I'm looking at these old guys, including myself. Right, guys? We've been around a long time. And what we have seen is what many have gone through, whether it be someone's, with regards to a, a transfer of the heart, splitting someone's chest open to get to the bad stuff, the cancer, the difficulties. I mean, we, we have a list of people that are going through very, very, very difficult times, but you know what? They're still here, praising the Lord. We are still here. We have walked with our God. And we rejoice in the Lord our God, even though I am certain that you were talking to us during those difficult times, we didn't have a smile on our face. It was difficult. It was tough. But God was gracious and caused our feet 
to be as deer's feet and to walk on our high hills, our high hills. My brethren, we do need to see when we're talking about these difficulties, and I mentioned riches, we need to see what riches, really what they are. They're temporal blessings. Money will not make you eternally happy. Now that does not mean that you should be happy to be in debt. It doesn't mean that. Or it doesn't mean that I'm not to be happy when I get paid. When you get your paycheck, of course you're happy. That's a good thing. That's a gift that God gives you. Can you imagine how, how backwards that would be? You get your, your paycheck and you're bummed out. You should see my paycheck, some say. But the bottom line is, is that we should be thankful for those riches that God gives to us. We should be happy with those things that God gives to us. And we show that happiness when we're quick to thank God for the daily bread he gives to, gives to us and as well as when we tithe, we show our dependence upon God as well as thankful to God and we thank him when we pray. We should be happy when we prosper. But money cannot make you eternally happy or perpetually happy because it is temporary. Just like that meal you had last night. I'm sure you were very happy you had that meal, right? You're going to be hungry again. You have to eat again. The meal, we pause, we pray, we give thanks for the food, but we know it's not eternal. It's temporary because guess what? We ate breakfast today. I'm assuming most of you ate breakfast or you will eat lunch. Things are temporary. These are temporary blessings. Money, therefore, is temporary. We should see the riches for what they are. That is that we are to take care of our needs. We are to tithe. We are to help others as well as to put money aside from when you can no longer work so you're not a burden to your family. There's a sanctified approach to money. Also to see that it is a gift from God. The riches that we have is a gift from God. Now the world will tell you, you get all this money, you're set for life. They have the lotto going on. I don't follow the lotto. I was listening to the news the other day and it came on and Got to a, is it a billion dollars? Or did someone win it? I don't know. But anyway, they, let's say that it's a billion dollars. Someone gets it and they tell them, hey, you're set for life. You're set for life. What about afterlife? What's that money going to do for you when you're on your sickbed? And I've heard a lot of the people end up declaring bankruptcy because they blow through that money like no one's business. That's what I hear. But the world will tell you you're set for life. Remember, it's called the deceitfulness of riches for a reason. It's deceiving. Look at all those that have been very, very rich, and they take their lives, and they're depressed and not happy. They get the riches. They're fooled into thinking that the happiness abounds. My brethren, we have a never-dying soul that will not find it's full fulfillment in the temporary, but only in the living God. We should thank the Lord for the riches, but we should be taken up with the giver of the gift and not the gift. That will help us in our battle against the deceitfulness of riches. It is indeed one in the heart, not by acquiring more wealth. Remember, Habakkuk is not rejoicing because of the prospect of prosperity, being restored, 
but in the God of his salvation. God has designed all of our trials with our good in mind. This is for our good. This is for our benefit, even though it doesn't feel like it. And you need to be careful of wrapping your heart around that which will sprout wings and fly away. I do want to address any here that may not be believers. Talk to the children then that have not professed faith in Christ. But those who are not Christians, you know, the report of the Chaldeans to Habakkuk was very fearful. It really was. But it was for 70 years of captivity. If you're not a Christian, there's a worse captivity that's coming. It's an eternity in hell. the wrath of Almighty God because of your sins. Kids, listen to me. There's a reason why you need to come to Christ, and that is because you have sinned against God. You've not obeyed your parents. If you did obey them, you didn't obey with a smile on your face or a smile on your heart. For those that are older that are still unconverted, and even some make light of hell, you know, there's only one thing that caused our Lord to fear. It wasn't the Sadducees or the Pharisees. It wasn't even the Romans. What was the thing that caused our Lord to fear so much? He had to endure the wrath of God. Great drops of blood, he sweated. Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. That's the only time we saw our Lord fearful. And we dared to take hell lightly? No. No. We do not dare do that. If you're not a Christian today, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. Come to him. He is willing. He is able. You may not be willing. But you pray that God make you willing. It includes all of the children here in this congregation and even those online that may not be believers. But then lastly, singing. Hymns brightens the heart. The prophet gave this to the chief musician, I'm sure to be sung during difficult times. It was to cheer their heart. Look at our hymns that we sing. Aren't they wonderful? Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show. It's short. Solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. When we sing that, it leaves an impression on our soul. I don't know if you knew that or not, but when you hear preaching, because God has taken that heart of stone out of us and given us a heart of flesh, we have a soul that's impressed by the hand of God when God's word is preached. Something else happens. It may have happened to you. When you're singing to him, and it, it strikes a chord within your soul, it's like the impression is laid upon your soul again. You've been impressed. You've been so encouraged by the words that you've read. It's, it's God's love letter to you. The hymns that we sing are wonderful, and I would submit to you, all of us in this auditorium should sing. Everyone should sing. Everyone. Well, I'm not a believer. You still should sing. Is your heart so hard that you can't even 
lift up some thanksgiving to God for how he's been good to you? Even more so us, here in this church, when we sing, everyone should sing, including the kids. And if the kids can't sing, they don't read. I should say when the kids can't read, hum. Easy to hum. Not that tough. All of us should be engaged in something that's going on here. We are singing praises to God. Remember Paul and Silas? They prayed and they sang hymns to God in prison. We're not in prison. How much more should we not praise the Lord? Our hymns have great theology. There's not vain babblings. We can meditate upon these words. We have hymn books that are just wonderful and they bring out God's truth, his love through his son. Even difficult hymns are there as well that talks about the sins of God's people and how they are redeemed from them. So, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on my high hills. To the chief musician with my string instruments, let us sing to his glory the next service. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for how you have um, encouraged us by your truth, by your love, and by your mercy. We give you thanks and praise you that you are the Lord. There is none other God but you. And we thank you that we've been reconciled to you by the work of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would seal these words to our heart that we would be believers and doers of this word. You would answer our request and do good to our souls this day, this day that we remember the resurrection of the dead by our dear Savior. Hear our prayers, for we pray in Jesus' name.